Play ball. Welcome to the sixth inning of the Baseball Rabbit Hole Podcast. The Baseball Podcast, where I look up something about baseball and follow the rabbit hole that it opens up. I don't know when you are listening to this podcast, but for me, it is spring 2021. This is the season that I decided to chronicle every game for the Chicago Cubs with poems. While this may seem odd to many of you, poems about baseball have been around since baseball began. This is probably because baseball began in an era of the printed word, where pictures were either hand-drawn or of such low quality that the only real way to see the game was to be there or to create it in your mind. Writers worked to bring the game alive for their readers in any way that they could, and poems were great for that purpose. With this, they inadvertently also created the romance of the game. The reason we are all so tied to this sport could very well be that these poems did not report about the game so much as they created it whole cloth out of the imaginations of the readers. As I found out in the first inning of this podcast, Henry Chadwick created the box score, which made it possible for people all over the country to understand what was happening on the field. But it was the poet that made it possible to understand what was happening inside us all. Good one. Written by Ernest Thayer under the pen name Finn in 1888 and published in the Daily Examiner in San Francisco, Casey at the Bat is considered the most famous baseball poem in history. If you are listening to a baseball podcast, then you are probably aware that this poem exists. And if you're like me, I doubt that many of you have actually read the whole thing or heard it. So let's fix that right now. The outlook wasn't brilliant for the Mudville 9 that day. The score stood 4-2 with but one inning more to play. And then when Cooney died at first and Barrows did the same, a sickly silence fell upon the patrons of the game. A straggling few got up to go in deep despair. The rest clung to that hope which springs eternal in the human breast. They thought if only Casey could get but a whack at that. They'd put up even money now with Casey at the bat. But Flynn preceded Casey, as did also Jimmy Blake. And the former was a Lulu, and the latter was a cake. So upon that stricken multitude, grim melancholy sat. For there seemed but little chance of Casey's getting to the bat. But Flynn let drive a single, to the wonderment of all. And Blake, the much despised, tore the cover off the ball. And when the dust had lifted, and the men saw what had occurred, there was Jimmy safe at second, and Flynn a hugging third. Then from five thousand throats and more, there rose a lusty yell. It rumbled through the valley, it rattled in the dell. It knocked upon the mountain, and recoiled upon the flat. For Casey, mighty Casey, was advancing to the bat. There was ease in Casey's manner as he stepped into his place. There was pride in Casey's bearing and a smile on Casey's face. And when responding to the cheers, he lightly doffed his hat. No stranger in the crowd could doubt t'was Casey at the bat. Ten thousand eyes were on him as he rubbed his hands with dirt. 
5,000 tongues applauded when he wiped them on his shirt. Then while the writhing pitcher ground the ball into his hip, defiance gleamed in Casey's eye. A sneer curled Casey's lip. And now the leather-covered sphere came hurtling through the air, and Casey stood a-watching it in haughty grandeur there. Close by the sturdy batsman, the ball unheeded sped. That ain't my style, said Casey. Strike one, the umpire said. From the benches, black with people, there went up a muffled roar, like the beating of the storm waves on a stern but distant shore. Kill him! Kill the umpire! shouted someone on the stands. And it's likely they'd have killed him, had not Casey raised his hand. With the smile of Christian charity, great Casey's visage shone. He stilled the rising tumult. He bade the game go on. He signaled to the pitcher. And once more the spheroid flew. But Casey still ignored it. And the umpire said, Strike two! Fraud! cried the maddened thousands. And Echo answered fraud. But one scornful look from Casey and the audience was awed. They saw his face grow stern and cold. They saw his muscles strain. And they knew that Casey wouldn't let that ball go by again. The sneer is gone from Casey's lip. His teeth are clenched in hate. He pounds with cruel violence, his bat upon the plate. And now the pitcher holds the ball. And now he lets it go. And now the air is shattered by the force of Casey's blow. Oh, somewhere in this favored land, the sun is shining bright. The band is playing somewhere, and somewhere hearts are light. And somewhere men are laughing, and somewhere children shout. But there is no joy in Mudville. Mighty Casey has struck out. The poem was one of many humorous poems Thayer had written for the Daily Examiner over the years, and was of no specific importance to its author or to the paper itself. The paper needed entertaining content, and Casey at the Bat was just filling that spot in the paper. It would possibly have died with the June 3rd edition of the paper, except that it struck the eye of Archibald Clavering Gunter, who cut it out and kept it. Gunter just happened to be good friends with an up-and-coming Broadway star named William DeWolf Hopper. Hopper was a huge baseball fan and had persuaded the owner of his opera company to take the company out to see the Chicago White Stockings play the New York Giants over at the Polo Grounds. In addition to just going out to the game, Colonel McCall, the owner of the company, invited the ballplayers to the show after the game. Both teams accepted the offer. Hopper had wanted to do something special for the ballplayers, and his buddy, Archibald Gunter, suggested Casey at the bat and gave his friend the poem clipping that he still had in his wallet. Hopper loved the poem, and decided it was just the thing to recite for the two teams. The day that the McCall Opera Company went out to the game, the White Stockings had won 4-2, which just happened to be the exact score from the poem. The stars were aligning as Hopper took to the stage and performed Casey at the Bat for the first time. The crowd, buoyed by the presence of the Giants and the White Stockings, went absolutely wild for the poem. 
A review was published in the New York World the next day, which described the scene. Men got up in their seats and cheered. It was one of the wildest scenes ever seen in a theater. William DeWolf Hopper became a star, and his renditions of Casey at the Bat became a staple of his career as he performed it over 10,000 times. Adding to the hype of the poem and the performance was a mystery at the center of it all. Nobody knew who had written the poem. If you remember, Thayer had signed it with his pen name, Finn, and it was several years before Thayer even claimed the poem. This led to the poem being attributed to other authors and then later to an investigation that ultimately led to Thayer being given credit. Between the humor of the poem, the theatrical performances, the mysterious origins, and even fan theories about who Casey was in real life, Casey at the Bat grew to become omnipresent in our culture. In case you're wondering, Casey was not based on any real players, according to Thayer. No, it was more about the themes of the poem. The haughty hero that fails, the wild, angry crowds cheering, and the sports comeback that falls just short were all packaged into a short bit of humor that has lent itself to every aspect of popular culture from movies to comic books to songs and even video games in the 21st century. Talking about Casey is no longer a reference to a poem, but a reference to a reference to a reference about failure. It is the essence of a sport in which even the greatest players fail a majority of the time. And in that, it is a metaphor for life itself, in which we all play the game, knowing that the best we can do is try to fail just a little less than those who came before us. Although the poem was written almost 140 years ago, it still paints a romantic picture of that thin line between victory and defeat, hope and despair. And to be honest, nothing is as relevant to 21st century baseball as the strikeout. And with that, we will let old Casey hit the showers and move on to what is considered to be the second most famous baseball poem ever written, because even in poetry, batting always seems to get more attention than defense. Hi, I'm Michael Cotton. I love independent podcasts. I love them so much, I created a website dedicated to them, theindiepodreport.com. It has lists of independent podcasts arranged by topic. You can link right to the podcast from the list so that you can give it a listen. If you're looking for a podcast, but you're tired of the same old lists, try IndiePodReport.com. You just might find your next favorite podcast. While this next poem was written a little over two decades later, its origins are somewhat the same as Casey at the Bat. It was a poem written for a humor column in a newspaper, the New York Evening Mail, and nobody really expected it to be a big deal. Franklin Adams wrote a daily column called Always in Good Humor, and his editor had informed him that he needed eight more lines to fill his upcoming column. On this particular day, Adams was bailing from work early to go see a baseball game. So... As Adams rode the bus to the game, he contemplated the eight lines he needed. Now, let me explain something here for those of you who may not understand what I mean when I talk about filling up space for the papers. Newspapers were an actual physical bunch of papers with stories, advertising, and pictures on them. 
each page had a specific amount of room to print these stories, which meant that the editors and writers would have to plan out how many words and lines they needed in each column before the paper could be printed. Adams had eight lines to fill, so he wrote a poem about his favorite team, the Chicago Cubs. Now, he lived and worked in New York, and he knew a poem about the Cubs wouldn't be well-received because the Cubs and Giants were bitter rivals at the time. So he wrote the poem from the perspective of a Giants fan, lamenting the brilliance of the Cubs infield. By the time he got off the bus, he'd finished his poem so he could enjoy the game. And here's what he wrote. These are the saddest of possible words. Tinker to Evers to Chance. Trio of bear cubs and fleeter than birds. Tinker and Evers and Chance. Ruthlessly pricking our gonfalon bubble. Making a giant hit into a double. Words that are heavy with nothing but trouble. Tinker to Evers to Chance. He turned it into his editor, originally titled That Double Play Again, and his editor didn't think it was all that great, but it did fill the space needed. It was published on July 12, 1910, in the New York Evening Mail. They probably assumed that would be the end of it. But then, the Chicago Daily Tribune reprinted the poem as Gotham's Woe on July 15th, and then on the 18th, the New York Evening Mail reprinted the poem under its final name, Baseball's Sad Lexicon. The poem sparked a back and forth between New York writers and Chicago writers sending poems back and forth through their respective newspapers. The poems either added to the poem directly and or added responses or were in the same style but illustrating different plays in baseball that year. This was the 1910 equivalent of going viral. The poems themselves have been somewhat lost to the public. They exist only in the files of the New York Public Library and the Center for Research Libraries, where it takes some considerable effort to be allowed to look through the old microfiche files. Anyway, back to the original. While Casey at the Bat is inarguably the most famous baseball poem, baseball's sad lexicon could be the most influential baseball poem. It made Tinker, Evers, and Chance the most famous double play combination in the history of the game. The problem with that is that they were never the best double play combination in the history of the game. In 1910, the team was fifth out of eight teams in double plays turned. In the years from 1906 to 1910, when they won four out of five pennants and two World Series championships, they were never the best at turning double plays. In the years after, they turned more double plays than they'd ever done before, but they still never led the league. Individually, none of them truly had the numbers to get into the Baseball Hall of Fame. They were excellent defenders, but they never even led the league in the thing they were most known for, and none of them distinguished themselves at the plate. Frank Chance is possibly the most deserving of the three as a manager because he managed the team through the great stretch from 06 to 10 and was able to keep Tinker and Evers from killing each other during that time because they absolutely hated each other. But, ultimately, his prowess as an actual player does not make the strongest argument. None of the three made the Hall of Fame while they were first eligible. Chance died in 1924, and both Tinker and Evers were so ill in 1946 that they could not attend the Hall of Fame ceremony when they were inducted. 
The poem had a life of its own, and within that life, the prowess of those three cubs was heightened. The power of the poem, the romance of games long gone, and the chance to honor some ill ball players with famous names led the Old Timers Committee to induct the three together. Bill James would later write a book in 1994 called Whatever Happened to the Hall of Fame. And with the induction of these three men together, he wrote, the argument that the Hall of Fame should be only for the greatest of the great was irretrievably lost. Outside of the mathematicians and people like me following rabbit holes that lead to unsatisfying stories, the only thing anyone really remembers is that Tinker to Evers to Chance was the greatest double play combination in the history of the game. Without Franklin Pierce Adams and baseball's sad lexicon, the Hall of Fame would be three Cubs less, which would have been fine. But what we have is so much better. It is life imitating art and art getting a second life. Because of the poem, we will never forget Tinker, Evers, or Chance. And because of the Hall of Fame, we will never forget baseball's sad lexicon. And when I come back, I'm going to finish off the podcast with a poem that some of you may know, but definitely does not get the fame of the other two, probably because of when it was written and how it was delivered. Hi, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. In fact, I hope you like it enough to give the Baseball Rabbit Hole a five-star rating on whatever app you're using to listen. These ratings help others find the podcast so they can enjoy it too. Unfortunately, independent podcasts like mine don't get the same sort of love as all the corporate podcasts with lots of money to back them. This is why I also have a website called IndiePodReport.com, where you can find other independent podcasts. Not only that, you could go even further in your love for what I am doing by clicking the support page at IndiePodReport.com to give me a little cash via the PayPal link you will find there. Thanks for supporting. Now let's get back to the show. The first two poems I looked at are the two most famous. They were a product of their times. Back at the turn of the 20th century, poetry was more prevalent, and because the written word was one of the major forms of entertainment, it carried much more weight than it does now. Although I will say there are some great contemporary poems being written, and you should all either search them out or maybe even write some for yourself. This last poem, though, is less remembered as it was part of a television broadcast back in 1989 and never immortalized on the page, as far as I know. Also, the poet is known as a baseball broadcaster rather than a poet, although I would say nobody has ever created more poetry about the game in the last 70-plus years. The poet is Vin Scully, the voice of the Brooklyn and Los Angeles Dodgers for 67 seasons. The sultry tones of baseball's greatest voice created poetry and called it play-by-play. In 1989, the Chicago Cubs had won the East and were hosting the San Francisco Giants at Wrigley Field in the NLCS. Vin Scully was a part of the national team broadcasting the playoffs. Before the second game, even though Vin Scully woke up sick and was not on that broadcast, Vin's voice greeted the television viewers before the game with an ode to Wrigley Field. You see, Wrigley Field is not just a ballpark. It's a connection to the past, 
And Vin Scully gave us a poem that not only celebrated everything Wrigley ever was, but gave Cubs fans hope for the future. Scully's poem is a wonderful celebration of what the place means, what baseball means, and really what life itself means. It is an ode to persevering through tough times with hope that it will all come out okay. As far as I know, this is untitled and unpublished, but it is a wonderful piece of poetry by the incomparable Vin Scully. She stands alone on the corner of Clark and Addison, this dowager queen, dressed in black and pearls, seventy-five years old, proud head held high, and not a hair out of place, awaiting yet another date with destiny, another time for Mr. Wright. She dreams, as old ladies will, of men gone long ago. Joe Tinker, Johnny Evers, Frank Chance, and of those of recent vintage, like her man Ernie, and the lion, and sweet Billy Williams. And she thinks wistfully of what might have been, and the pain is still fresh and new, and her eyes fill, and her lips tremble. And she shakes her head ever so slightly. And then she sighs, pulls her shawl tightly around her frail shoulders, and thinks, this time, this time, it will be better. The Cubs beat the Giants that night, but it did not get better, because that was the only game they won in that series. And it would continue to not get better at least not for another 27 years, when Kyle Hendricks would pitch a masterpiece against Vince Scully's Dodgers to finally send the Cubs back to the World Series. If you remove the specific references to Wrigley Field and the Cubs, this is what it means to be a fan of baseball, or really, to just be human. Time marches on for all of us, but each spring, or each day, we get up and move forward. If we're lucky, it will be better. The recaps and the numbers, and even the final outcomes of games or seasons and careers, don't connect people to the game like poetry does. There's just something about the romance of poetry that connects us to the romance of the game. I hope you enjoyed this inning of the baseball rabbit hole. Until next time, keep rounding those bases. You're out! And now for the box score. This inning of the Baseball Rabbit Hole podcast was produced by Michael Cotton, written by Michael Cotton, researched by Michael Cotton, and performed by Michael Cotton. <laughs>